Welcome aboard the USS Aeronome. To become a member of our crew, please visit perfectorganism.com slash support. As a patron of Perfect Organism, you'll receive exclusive perks and early access to content. Incoming audio transmission received. Please proceed to Subdeck 3 to begin playback. Thank you, and welcome aboard. Sweethearts, what are you waiting for? Breakfast in bed? Another glorious day in the Corps. Day in the Marine Corps is like a day on the farm. Every meal is a banquet. Every paycheck a fortune. Every formation a parade. I love the Corps. Where's Basket? Let's rock! Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I'm your host, J.M. Prater, and I'm joined by... Patrick Green. What up, everybody? And uh, today we are interviewing artist and all-around awesome guy, Johnny Christmas. Yeah, and Johnny is, you know, he's he's been a, a big name in fandom lately because of his work on the Gibson Alien 3 comics, which is the focus of this episode. But he's been um, a, a, an increasingly more prominent name in visual storytelling over the last few years with works like um, like Sheltered and Pisces, and most recently... Angel Catbird, which is a collaboration with, a, you know, more than legendary Margaret Atwood and uh, uh, Tamara Bonvillain, who is the same uh, colorist that he's using, he's working with, with uh, Alien 3. So he's uh, really making a name for himself, and we're so excited to have him on to talk about the Gibson Alien 3 series. So welcome, Johnny. Yeah, hey. thank you, sir. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, so um, before we kind of get into the meat of the of the comics themselves, I, we just wanted to know a little bit about your background, how you got into comics, how you got into storytelling, and um, just a little bit about you. Uh, well, I always uh, loved comics ever since I was a kid, and um, so I really got into them pretty heavily in high school, went to art school, uh, like did them a bit there, just kind of for myself and with my friends, and then I kind of stepped away from them for quite some time, and then now I'm back and... Um, and it's been uh, been really good. I've been really enjoying it, and been uh, able to work on some really exciting properties and and projects with um, really wonderful people. So um, couldn't be happier. Did you when when you say you got into comics like at kind of a young age? Are there any that stick out as especially important to you? Yeah, it was, um, Jim Lee's X Men run with uh, Chris Claremont. Was yeah, really, yeah, it was the first time I, I kind of realized that comics were made by actual people that they weren't just like like you know like things that are like chairs or something which chairs are made by people i realized <laughs> um, you just kind of think of them as uniform uh they were very uniform that's what it is a lot of house styles etc but when uh, jim lee came on the scene that's when i started um seeing people who had more of a personal touch and after that i started hunting down auteurs and then of course then you start finding Nola and, and otomo and you know Folks like that, Jaime Hernandez, people who have like a per like a personal style, and at that point, you know, it was no turning back. What was it about Jim Lee's art in particular that appealed to you? Uh, you know, I think it's just wired for a teenage boy's brain. <laughs> it was just like it's very exciting. Lots of uh, you know, um, action. Lots of you know, hyper kind of realism with um, with some like solid cartooning. You know, so it's not. It doesn't look like a 
a straight up photo reference drawing or anything. So it looks like a comic, but it also has like, you know, the proportions are um, uh, dynamic enough to look comic and superhero-y, but they're, but they're, the, they're based in something. There's something like weighting them. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I mean, obviously it's, I'm not the only one since he's, you know, one of the most uh, famous comic artists of all time. So well, a number of his, especially his X-Men work, uh, some of those are the, the, the biggest selling comics ever made, right? Like ever made. Yeah. Number one, I think is still holding the record at what? 8 million. When I was a kid that appealed to me so much too. And I've never heard anybody else sort of articulate why, but I think you're right. It's something about like the kinetic aspect of it and the fact that it feels believable, but it doesn't feel like it's like Alex Ross sort of like photorealistic painterly kind of style. It feels like, really good comic art you know yeah really good comic art that's, that's a really good way to put it and uh in the same way how uh rob liefeld though he gets uh, kind of kicked around now <laughs> um, by some people but his his art had uh an excitement as well to it you know i think that, that was like an age of uh all you know that first wave of um guys who went on to eventually form image image they yeah. all very kinetic exciting style i mean farland and uh, portacio and um you know, Silvestri and, you know, Larson and, you know, we can go on and on. So there was something there. It was a, you know, a main ingredient that was this excitement. It was just like baked into what they were doing. You know, there's a lot of energy and there's a lot of pockets. I think that we can agree that uh, <laughs> there was there was no shortage of pockets back then. Um, so we were wondering, what's your relationship with Alien? Did you have, did you come into this with sort of a pre-existing uh, appreciation of the franchise, or is it something that sort of came through working on the property? What's your history with it? Uh, yeah, I love, I love the uh, Alien franchise. I mean, it's... I'm trying to think. Is it my favorite horror? Like, sci-fi horror, probably. I mean, I, I watch those movies like, like a religion. Because they're also... Um, no, especially the earlier ones. They're, they're so, you know, the first two are very, they're almost like art films. Like the, the first one, it's like this very um, well-paced, well-measured thing that, you know, when you're watching it, you're like, how are, like, are you allowed to do this in a sci-fi horror movie? Like, isn't it supposed to be like, you know, like crazy kinetic? And so at a young age, it was just, I didn't, I couldn't believe that they were doing that. And then um, when I eventually saw the second one, that uh, the pace of it is incredible. The fact that it doesn't stop. It's, it's a lot like a, when I look at Fury Road, it reminds me of Aliens. Like oh it's my God, I love that movie. Stop. The pace is relentless, but at the same time, you're getting characterization, you're getting, you know, all this like, all the story craft is there, but without stopping. And that's just kind of like this magic trick. Like I, I watch that movie way too often just trying to figure out how do you do that? You know, like there's the settings are always changing yet. You're, you're glued in the whole time. It's really something. Would you say that's your favorite of the original trilogy? The second film? Ooh. You know what? I I think my head wants to say the first one, but my heart's saying the second one. I mean, there's... Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
for starters, the second one, you're, you're, you know, the adrenaline's up the whole time. So you're just, you're plugged in, you know, there's, you can't look away for a moment because this thing is, the train is moving, you know? So yeah, I would, I would have to say the second. Right. Well, you know, we're actually um, on, on the podcast, we're in the middle of a, of a very extended series at the moment on aliens called 40 Miles of Bad Road, which comes from a quote James Cameron gave about the process of making the film. And um, part of what we've been doing with the series is basically investigating it so it becomes less of a monolith, like less of this thing that's sort of incomprehensibly great and more of like a real thing. Kind of like you were saying with Jim Lee, sort of like a, a, a product made by actual humans, you know? Um, I think it's such a masterpiece that it gets kind of lost sometimes. So it's interesting to hear you say that. I'm curious to hear what you guys find and, in, in, you know, information at the end of your uh, examination. No, well, I, I, it's interesting. Like Patrick is more of the comic guy. Um, most of our crew, which uh, when we have like round tables, everyone's kind of way into the comics. My first, the first comics I ever bought as a kid were the comics for alien three. And <laughs> so I find it ironic the next set of comics I ever buy as an adult are a different iteration of Alien 3. So I feel like I've come full circle. Um, and I don't, I don't speak the language so much. I mean, I, you know, I've really been enjoying what I've uh, – in fact, actually, uh, I was just at Fox uh, a week ago, and they gave me every variant cover of issue one, which was awesome. Um, and, I've, of course, I've, I've read uh, issue one, issue two. I haven't read three yet. But uh, it's just flipping through the pages. I just was like, oh, my God, like I haven't done this since I was a kid. And it was for Alien. And then I bought uh, the uh, Newt's Tale, you know, that series. And then I ended up buying more. I wish I would have kept them. Um, but I it is it, again, it's just this really uh, full circle. And now just to, as an adult to be able to speak to the artist. I mean, they're, they're not just, uh, oh, yeah, they're Alien comics are really well they're really beautiful. So I wanted to come compliment you on, on the work really and truly like I, as a, an artist myself and someone who's into aesthetics of everything. Uh, it's important for me that something look good or it loses my interest and it really looks good. Thank you. I appreciate that. Absolutely. So I want to go back for a minute to the actual project itself. I'm, I'm curious about how it started, like who approached you or did you approach them? How did Dark Horse, was it, what, did they come up with the idea? What's some of the background on why they're doing these unproduced screenplays? Well, I, I think um, uh, my editor, uh, Daniel Shabon, I'm not sure when it occurred to him, but I know there was that article floating around in uh, Vulture, a very, really wonderful, wonderfully done piece about um, the William Gibson uh, screenplay. And I don't know if Daniel came across that first or if it had been something knocking around in his head because he's always kind of trying to figure out cool projects that he could bring to uh, Dark Horse. And, you know, Dark Horse has the, you know, alien uh, contract. So and, and he's a Dark Horse editor? Yeah, yeah, okay. he's a Dark Horse editor. Who you've worked and, uh, with in the past or is this somebody new who sought you out? I uh, worked with him on uh, Angel Catbird um, okay. and, you know, have a... Like uh, he's a lovely guy, um, great relationship. So I think he was kind of looking around at you know projects. He's always looking around at projects and looking at people that you know he's worked with and that he he's working with. So somewhere along the line, he like he uh, he just reached out and said, "Hey, would you be interested in um, doing this uh, project?" So uh, I, I ran out and uh, you know I read this, you know both um, versions of the screenplay 
of drafts and um going through the the first uh draft i, I shot an email back like yeah yeah i'm definitely i, I definitely want to do this wow um, so so it spoke to you right off the bat oh yeah yeah because there's, there's lots of um lots of projects that i just I, I don't say yes to i turn them down um because they just don't you know i don't know for for whatever reasons and um but this was this was as as you're reading it, you can see it, you know, happen. Um, what's what's funny? I was talking with Jamie about this. You know, we, we did a whole extended series on the unproduced scripts uh, about a year and a half ago, where we went through you know everything from obviously this from the Gibson script to the to the Vincent Ward script to the uh, Eric Red script, and um, for some reason, this was the one that was the least visual to me. And I feel like I'm actually getting so much out of watching your your art bring it to life. It's it's suddenly kind of making sense to me now. And it's funny because I I, you know, I read the script for the first time probably eight years ago, and um and it's it's such a trip now as like a longtime fan getting to actually see what it would look like. Because you know there's I'm sure you know there's been fan storyboards that have been put online. There's you know people who kind of experimented with it, but to have this like extraordinarily well produced body of work around it, it's a it's a real visual treat as a as a fan. Yeah, maybe my brain's just wired that way for, from being a visual artist. So, like, I, like I, because I've seen some screenplays that don't pop because they're they're very um internal, um internal lives of the characters. But for this with this one, you know, I could I could see it. I could see it clearly. Um, was there was there a moment as you were reading it where you were like, oh, this is this is the project? Uh I think it was all all in a totality. It just all started like you know, it just started racking up instead of uh, one big aha moment. Like just page after page, it was. You just like when when you get these projects, you're kind of looking for the moment to say no, <laughs> and right. you just kind of, and then you're realizing that oh, that moment's not going to come. Like this, this is a go. So, it was a go. In terms of, of course, it's an adaptation from you know 120 page plus script to comic book form, which is, of course, very different. Do you have to essentially make a new script, an, ad- an adaptation script, and then from there, like, what's that process like? Yeah, so I had to, I had to make a, an adaptation script. I had to uh, take um, what uh, Mr. Gibson did and, and try to make it um, into five episodes. So, you know, instead of, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to butcher it. I wanted it to be, Anyone who's a fan of the screenplay, I wanted them to, to come to it and not really feel my hand. I wanted them to like think like, oh yeah, this is what this is exactly what he did, right? So any any like changes or modifications I did, I, I tried to keep them. Um, I tried to kind of conceal my hand. So so I would heighten uh, parts to create um, cliffhangers for the next episode, but I didn't want them so heightened to the point where you're where it feels something different. So, so yeah, so I took the script and I kind of broke it down into five different sort of motifs for the five different episodes, um, uh, issues. So I think it was like, I think it was like initiation, escalation. Um, uh, I forget what I, I forget what I call them. I think it, the last ones were like outbreak frenzy, something like that. Anyway, but, um, to just sort of like keep in mind that these had to sort of stand on their own as issues, but also speak um, as one piece when they're eventually um, collected as a graphic novel. So, so yeah, so just kind of broke it down as scripts and I had to take some stuff out, um, try to make that stuff less obvious. Um, and, um, 
Yeah, which was kind of hard because a lot of time, because uh, being a novel writer, so much of uh, the characterization was put into these really um, uh, important pieces of plot. It was just kind of baked in together like a good writer would do, <laughs> as William Gibson's a very good writer. So trying to part, like pull some of that stuff apart, like, okay, I can't use this whole scene, but I really need them to, I need this part where they say this because that leads to X, Y, or Z. So um, trying to, you know, disperse things without, while editing. And, um, it was interesting. It was an interesting little puzzle. When you were making decisions like that, I'm wondering, was William Gibson consulted? Oh, yeah. I shot him, uh, every time I did a, a script, I would send him um, what I did. I sent him what I changed, why I changed it, and what page it was on. <laughs> I and, wanted and, him. Well, how did, how did he respond to that? Was he was he cool about it? Yeah, he was super generous. I mean, like insanely generous. He would, um, um, he just kind of like he he would. He didn't even add that many um had that have that many notes to it. He was just kind of like, oh yeah, yeah, that makes sense, or you know, okay, all right. And then um we we met, had coffee, and. Which was really generous of him as well, because he's you know writing an agency right now. Which he, I think he's probably wrapped up by now. But like he was in you know when you're immersed in a world, you know, like you don't want to be pulled out of it. But oh, yeah. he was really for us to like to meet and go over this screenplay that he did you know 30 years ago for the changes that I wanted to talk about. You know, so I really really uh, appreciate that. What was that? What was that experience like sitting down with him? Because you know we as we talked about on the series that we did, you know this was in a lot of ways, I think, kind of a painful experience for him. You know, I mean, the development of Alien 3 was so fraught in so many ways, as I'm sure you know. And his, you know, the, he had the first draft, and then it was disrupted by the writer's strike, and then the studio was getting in the way of it, and then he had the second draft, and by that point, they kind of moved on. And it was sort of, I, I and it was his first, you know, attempt at a screenplay. I, I kind of feel like this must be, in some ways, difficult for him, but maybe it's liberating. What did he Did he talk about that at all when you met with him? Uh, he had he had these great Hollywood stories. Um, I think um, for him, uh, without you know, I think it was I think it was uh, an interesting experience. You know, I think you know, like any writer, you know, he put you know quite a bit of himself in it. But I think he realized that like it, it's not his. So I think he he could remove himself uh, to some degree. This is me just guessing, you know. Um, but the feeling I got from talking to him about it was that, um, yeah, that, you know, he, he put forth an effort and he, he did realize that it wasn't up to him ultimately if it was going to be made or not. And, um, and I think, uh, as one starts one of these things, you, you're pretty sure that it isn't going to happen. And I think maybe later on, you're kind of, as you're going along, you're like, oh, I think this might happen, you know? Um, so I, I don't know if painful is the word for it. I, I can't put words in his mouth, but. I, uh, you know, I, it, it didn't scar him enough where he couldn't, you know, talk about it or, or he's not uh, interested in seeing it come to life because he's been really supportive of it um, all down the line, which is, which has been really uh, a wonderful boon to the project. Backing up quickly, I just, just so I'm, Again, about the process of this, before you started, um, before you put your hands on the Gibson script, was there, uh, 
I, again, I don't, I don't know how this works. What did you have a, a choice of? Well, there's this script that this guy wrote. Here's Gibson script. Here's that. Which one do you want to do? Or did they come to you saying, "This is what we want to do. This is a project we're interested in you for this script specifically." Yeah, yeah. They wanted a Gibson script okay. and uh, second draft. So because uh, that one ha- is a is a lot more. The first draft has a lot of like, you know super kinetic cool stuff in it but the second draft um i think does work better as a comic because it, it it builds in a in a way that um that's different that's probably more um comic like uh, and it's the one i like best too so i was i was happy about that well it's funny you say that because i was actually going to ask you know the the if this were being paced according to the first draft I feel like there would have to be another like nine issues coming out, and I was thinking there's there's sort of no way that would work. So that makes a lot of sense. So it's not going to be quite as enormous as the first, but more kind of character driven in these last couple of issues that we have coming out. Does build up to like full on, full out like insanity, but it uh, the apex of it happens, yeah, in a way that isn't um, that wouldn't take like fifteen issues of like stuff blowing up like it's... right well because that was kind of the problem with the first draft right is it was like there was so much in that last act and also it would have made it like basically i think they said it would have been 170 million dollars to produce <laughs> if they'd if they'd shot it the way that he wrote it um weren't they like 50 xenomorphs or something it was like it was yeah, like hundreds cool. right because it was like the whole entire space station was infected basically which would be pretty intense um so i don't want to spoil anything i want to i want to be careful about that because there are a couple of issues left but I do have a couple of questions about some things that you know are in the Gibson script and how you may or may not have approached them visually and from a storytelling standpoint. Well, I'm I'm curious about a few things, and on the the cover of issue four, which is dropping in February in, in a, a few weeks, um, you have somebody's face revealing a xenomorph underneath, and in when I talk about having a hard time visualizing the script. Personally, because I'm I'm not uh, anywhere near as visual a person, obviously, as you are, or as Jamie is. Jamie's a great artist too. Um, I, I that's something that I have a hard time visualizing, and I have to say, the cover that the image that was released is extremely haunting, and it makes a lot of sense for me. So, just talking from kind of a xenobiology standpoint, for people who who may not have read the script for a while, in the Gibson script, there's this trope that um, well, there's a lot of deviations from the standard reproductive cycles of xenomorphs. And, um, and it, there's a lot of interesting possibilities that are kind of opened up with that that I do want to touch on. But one of them is that there's an airborne virus and that the virus is able to basically mutate somebody underneath their sort of valent skin level uh, into a xenomorph. And then the skin gets ripped off with this thing that in the script is called the changing, I think, kind of like an American werewolf in Paris moment or something. And then this sort of xenomorph emerges. So I'm assuming that's what's going on in the cover of the next issue. Um, and what I'm wondering is how did, how did, is that something that was kind of hard to visualize or is that something that attracted you to it or what was it, what was it like trying to do that? Cause we haven't seen it before. Uh, it was, it was really cool, uh, really fun to do. Um, you know, you, you could feel the, the, um, the seeds that he planted in his screenplay pop up in Covenant with the airborne kind of deal going. Yeah. There. But, uh, but with, uh, what I was trying to do with it, I thought it was, really cool that uh, he has these very elegant kind of ripping um, situations and then, you know, things sort of emerge. But I also kind of wanted it to still feel like um, uh, I didn't want to 
you know, go at one clean go because then it wouldn't because basically xenomorph heads are a lot larger than human heads. So like if you ripped, then it would like where'd all that extra head come from? So I wanted the heads to sort of um, you don't see it as much on the cover, but you'll see it in the issue where there is more of a changing. And it's just like this kind of horror show that starts on un, on, um, you know, kind of spilling out and then the ripping starts happening. So so I wanted to kind of have like a like, yeah, it's happening under the surface, but you can kind of see the biology under the skin kind of moving around and it's kind of i got fucking chills over here this is so scary yeah so so that and which was really fun to draw watch you know watching someone kind of just come undone and like not sure what the hell's happening meanwhile their you know bones are changing so yeah it was really fun well just something that's been coming up a lot lately you know we've been talking about potential future directions i'm not moving on from that i want to come back to this in a second but we've been talking a lot about things people want to see in future movies because you know the situation at fox is kind of very up in the air and nobody knows what's going to happen and a lot of people keep saying body horror and i think there's this sort of emerging consensus in fandom that that's something that we're all kind of afraid of and also really um in awe of that like some there's something fundamentally alien about something like egg morphing or something like this viral strain or the changing process, that that's something that really scares us and also excites us in a weird way. So um, I think that's going to be a hit. Jamie, go ahead. Yeah, well, I was uh, just, it's one moment, and along the lines of the different reproductive, uh, for lack of better terms, vehicles of the xenomorph, what I love in the story is when the characters are talking about how any kind of xenomorph can become a queen they're not beholden to um this kind of lifestyle life cycle they're kind of always changing and um adapting to their surroundings and it's it, it kind of moves the alien back to alien territory and i thought again it's just this kind of beautiful moment where you're like man it doesn't matter where they are they don't need to do you know they don't always need like this specific kind of egg that has a queen face hugger that it's almost like, uh, but it's a little reflective of like, say, clownfish, where clownfish, uh, the male of a brood dies, a female will rise up and turn into a male. Um, I thought it was really inventive. Yeah, well, like uh, Komodo dragons, right? Where like you can have hermaphroditic yeah. organisms. And actually the UPP, I think, references that in issue two or three, yeah. um, which I think is so fascinating. Yeah, it, and it, uh, it kind of goes to the the theme of these transformations. Uh, so when it does happen in humans, the, the setup was really nicely done in that, oh, so this is something that's going on with them. So when they're uh, merged with a human, the possibilities are now, you know, exponential from that key that's just sort of been opened up with um, that any drone can become a queen sort of idea. And again, in the in the films that answer the, that question is never answered. You know, this is something that's not canon yet. There is no single way that a queen forms. And so, what's great in this, these expanded universe adventures we get to go on is we get to sort of postulate what would happen if this. And I think it makes a lot of sense. You know, the xenomorph is the ultimate survivor, right? It's the ultimate extremomorph. And um, it would make sense that in any conditions, basically, they would find a way to have a queen. And just like you say in the in the graphic in the comic. In the presence of a, of a sufficient number of hosts, a queen will just make itself, basically.
Something that I love about that moment with Bishop, actually, that I just wanted to point out that I noticed when I was rereading it, is the way you drew um, the egg growing. So, like, the root system of it is sort of under his, sort of subcutaneous for him. Yeah. Um, Was that your idea? Was that somewhere in the script? Is that, like, where did that come from? I just, I just thought, like, if, uh, if it just, I thought it should be growing on something, right? It would probably be feeding on whatever can get its hooks in. Right. Um, I figure there's got to be some sort of material uh, in Bishop. Like, I mean, there's got to be some sort of power pack. There's got to be something that they, that that the egg will be trying to, even if it couldn't utilize it, it'd be trying right. to. So um, it's kind of so, rooting around in there for something to. Yeah, and maybe it's trying to mean something. Maybe it's not. But I thought it'd be cool to to at least see that. So that way, it doesn't look like it's just placed there. Like it's been there in this very horrible, um, invasive way for some time. And it's just so horrifying. Again, it's just this because mo- Bishop is such a noble android, you know. And and I and I know Gibson has gone on record saying that that was his favorite part of of Aliens was Bishop's arc, and that like he was sort of thought of Bishop as kind of a protagonist. Um, and so it's 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 so sad, you know. Like you see, such a yeah. it's such a tragic fall for him. And I know in the Gibson, and I'm assuming in the comics, we'll see he has a little bit of a redemption coming up. But um, he's an amazing character. Yeah, yeah, and you could tell uh, from uh, the screenplay that Gibson cares about him. Did but, you talk to him about that at all when you met? About uh, his feelings about uh, Bishop? Yeah, and, and about the characters in general, like what, what he kind of thought about Ripley and Hicks and, and Newt and some of these canonical characters. No, not really. No, we're just, we just kind of talked about story stuff and, and how to keep it moving forward and, and things I wanted to change and that sort of thing, but... Um, no, no, we didn't. Interesting. Is there a, uh, and in terms of the process of uh, creating these issues, is, was there a, a certain issue or a, a certain set of, you know, um, I'm sorry, the words uh, are escaping me right now, um, cells or whatever that you're working on that you're like, oh, this was my favorite part to do. I don't know if it was drawing Ripley or something like that where you're like, this was a really just something that you were looking forward to kind of, okay, I'm going to, uh, bring this part to life. Yeah. Uh, face hugger attack because the face hugger is my favorite movie monster. Really? Wow. That's awesome. And I love how you do it with those horizontal lines. Like there's so much motion to it. Oh, thanks. Oh, so cool. uh, It's the most horrifying month, like bar none. Like I can't think of anything more horrifying. Goddamn face hugger. (laughs) <laughs> talking about it right now um but uh also the uh the change in um that you'll see in issue four i'm um, i was very i was really looking forward to that and when that day came i was super jazzed just the image i haven't read it yet but just the image of this the face and the eyes popping out and it's just being torn up i mean that's that's nightmare material it's right so there. fucked up i know well I'm, I'm i'm curious like why like why did that why did that draw you in like what was exciting about that uh I, I liked the, um, I like the, so there's a storyline with the, that character in particular. It, um, she's like a smooth operator. She's like, you know, she's always in control. And she kind the, of the cufflink eyes, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, and she, so just sort of the juxtaposition of having that character go undergo this 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 change that's. She's looking for this thing, you know, she's on this quest for this thing, and then it comes to her, and then all of a sudden, everything gets out of control, and, and this thing is happening to her, and it's, 
I don't know, there's just so many wonderful, um, there's so much like hubris and comeuppance and schadenfreude and all this interesting stuff going on in that scene. And it, and it all comes together in which, it comes together in a way where now you know that there's no, there's no turning back. It's kind of, this thing is, is loose in a way that they didn't even think was possible. Everyone's freaked out by it. She's freaked out by it. And it's, and, and as a, as a person who's now reading it, you're wondering like, oh shit, is this thing airborne now? Like what, what's happening now? Um, it's a, it's a big turning point in, in the story. And I thought it was really cool emotionally and visually. Which again, Jamie, that's, that's putting the alien back in alien, right? That's what we've been talking about. Absolutely. The unknown, you know, actually to that end, um, you know, we we've obviously been talking a lot about Covenant over the last couple of years because that's the most recent um, film that we have, and because it, it's sort of been very divisive in fandom. But something I think we can all agree about is um, is the neomorph sequences, and especially the backburster sequence, being some of the best, really true horror in the franchise. And uh, I'm wondering um, when when you when you were you know brought on board, did the there's there's very obvious connections at least on a thematic level with Ridley Scott's prequel work. Um, you know, you even very explicitly include that material about that, you know, these are obviously bioengineered ancient weapons from some civilization that, you know, is long gone. Um, were you given any guidance by either Fox or by Dark Horse about what to include and what not to include vis-a-vis prequel continuity? Or was that something you kind of did on your own? Uh, no, yeah, they, they kind of left me alone, except for uh, there, there's a few design things where they kind of popped in, uh, Fox did, and um, wanted certain things certain ways, but... Uh, in terms of the story, I was actually kind of surprised that that was the adaptation was the easiest part of it. The adaptation script, like uh, you know, approvals came fast and furious, and they did not um, interfere. Uh, my my editor at Dark Horse, who's a, a sharp fellow, he would pop in with things that would just help, not not like oh well they want it this way. It was just kind of like oh what it uh, what, what are you intending with this? And I was like, oh, yeah, X, Y, Z. And he's like, oh, okay, cool, that works. That sort of thing. But, yeah, no, it's pretty easy. I think it, I think it speaks uh, a lot to your talent as a storyteller that they were that, that they, that they were not precious with William Gibson's work because he's such a, you know, such an, uh, a legendary figure in science fiction. The fact that, like, your choices were so dead on that they were like, yeah, go with it. <laughs> you know, and that, and that it works, that it, that they were right. Like, it works as a story. I think it's such a testament to what you bring to it. Um, we uh, so I know we, we we don't have that much time left. There's a couple more things I wanted to touch on. One of them, just briefly, um, and Jamie, I want you to jump in here too because you're such a great thinker. Um, you know, part of what I think works about the Gibson script is uh the way that it uses analogy and metaphor. Obviously, about uh you know the, the there's the whole UPP angle, which is sort of a Cold War metaphor, and then there's the whole changing aspect, which is an AIDS metaphor. You know, at least in, some people view it as that. Um. Something that I'm, I'm wondering about, if you were to make the screenplay now, if, if you were William Gibson writing in 2018, or, two, oh God, it's 2019 now, what do you think, uh, what would you be writing about if you wanted to kind of maintain some of that metaphorical illusion? That's a, a very good question. Um, I, I, first of all, I think it might be entirely different in that the UPP and the, the Cold War thing came from the producers. That was a, a mandate that uh, Gibson got at the start. It's right, like, that was Geiler and Hill had that idea, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so who knows? Like, it would probably be entirely alien. Uh, that's a very good question. That, that's a very good question, Jamie. Well, well, what about um, 
Well, two questions. Uh, if you could tell an alien story on your own, I'm interested in what that might be, how that might look. Obviously, just kind of a general idea. Second question, um, is this kind of uh, a dip in the water for maybe another uh, adaptation series later on, maybe later in the year or next year? So those are my questions. Uh, I I would I would probably do something around the Genesis, like uh, which I'm sure they wouldn't want. You know, Fox would probably want to keep holding on to that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like that that's the most alluring thing. Like, what um, environment creates the most perfect killing machine? Like, what environment is so hostile that that's what came out of it? That's um, that. I mean, that's that's very alluring to me. Um, and you know, I, I'd be very curious uh, if they if if Dark Horse wanted more of the scripts adapted. It'd be it'd be interesting to to sort of see what happened there. But uh, for now, this this is it for me in the uh, Alien uh, universe. But um, I I do enjoy it, and uh, if you know if uh, opportunity came along again, perhaps I you know I'd consider it. Awesome. Well, something that you bring to it that I feel like we haven't seen very much is a real sense of it really reads like a comic book, like we were talking about in the very beginning. I think a lot of that has to do with Tamara Bonvalin's colors, which are just extraordinary. I think her the way that she uses um, light and brightness is something really novel within this IP. And I know that you know I've seen your work on Angel Catbird, which is also fucking amazing. And I think that her color, she does the colors for that, right? Yeah, yeah, she does. It's just a, a similar sense of like almost like the page can't contain uh, the luminosity of the of the colors that are being used, and we don't see that with with Alien, you know. And, and I think it's something that's really hard to pull off, but these books do. And what what's great to me is that um, you know we, we just we just finished with Gabriel Hardman's um, Dust to Dust series, which was extremely different um, and enjoyable in different ways. And um, and one of my other favorites um, over, over recent years was uh, James Stokoe's. Dead Orbit, which is, again, just a completely different yeah. take. It's very kind of abstract and very dark. And then we have this Alien 3, th- and, and you would think, you know, a William Gibson Alien 3 adaptation, like how dark can it get? And it's actually not. It's actually very bright, and it's very um, kinetic, and it's very, like, compelling from a visual standpoint. And I think it's been refreshing, and I, I really hope that it helps open up avenues for different types of storytelling within the IP. I, th- I think it really will. One other thing I want to touch on before we go to listener questions before we close is um, we've had a number of episodes. It was supposed to be one episode, and then because the conversation couldn't stop and because we had so many people writing in, we kind of we've been expanding it into two and maybe three. We've been talking a lot about the queen. I'm not going to ask you to spoil anything because they're, in the Gibson screenplay, there are queens involved. and I don't know if you use them or if you didn't use them, and we can leave that. But just from a personal standpoint, as an artist and a writer and a storyteller and a fan— do you feel, and this is Jamie's question, so I want to make sure he gets credit for that. Do you feel that having an, a queen dumbs things down, or um, is it all disempowering of the mystery of Alien? Or do you like having a queen in the story? Wait, wait. Let's reframe that question. I don't think that the queen dumbs things down. My question would be, if it is the presence of a queen a little too familiar um, and less alien? Let's frame it that way. 
uh, I, I would say with the the speed in which aliens moved, it uh, it was it's a helpful shorthand. Um, so a character doesn't have to look into the camera and go, oh, well, I see, you know, and go into like you know, this sort of uh, techno talk, techno babble that like Star Trek uh, folks need to do to kind of uh, frame these ideas. Uh, so I think the Queen kind of just kind of immediately. In a very, I mean, it, it's like we're familiar with it now, so we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, queen, alien queen, whatever. But I'm sure at the time it must have been quite like, oh, shit, they're like bees, you know? Um, so I, I don't, I wouldn't say it dumps things down. I think it, I think it's a very helpful story device when you've got, you know, 30 seconds to explain a thing and also um, giving the, the viewer something new. Because if they, if it was just Zenos all over again, I'm sure it'd been very exciting. But if you give them like, if you step it up, you keep moving along this evolution. Uh, I think it, I think yeah, I like them. I think they're cool. And plus the fact, and the way uh, uh, Cameron's queen looked with the puppetry, like how it was all janky moving and stuff. I thought it was a, just kind of like this eerie. Uh, it felt it kind of took it back to horror a bit. It's kind of like filming someone walking and playing it back in reverse, how it just kind of moves in a slightly weird way. Yeah, it is kind of janky. You're right. It's sort of like sort of like what what and and then that what question is sort of where the horror creeps in because it's like how is this thing moving? You know, and why does it look like that? Yeah, right. It's not coming straight. Like it's moving straight, but it's it's you know legs are going sideways, kind of like it's just (laughs) trying to. Is it a crab or is it a what? (laughs) Right. Exactly. Um. All right, so so before we close, we had a bunch of questions come in from listeners. Uh, we, you know, we told them yesterday that we were going to have you on the show, and everybody was super excited about it, and they asked a lot of things. We're not going to have time to get to all of them because I know you're a busy guy and you have another interview coming up. But there's a couple that I wanted to touch on. Um, one of them comes from a good friend of ours, Bryant Dillon, who was actually on the most recent Queen episode. And he said uh, he would love to know more regarding Hicks' acid scars. The visuals are much less severe than those in previous depictions in Dark Horse comics and even the Blomkamp concept art, but also, mu- also much closer to the wounds actually shown in the second film. Was there discussion on how scarred a Hicks should be, and what was your reasoning as the artist? Uh, there wasn't any uh, discussion, but I... I know they wanted it to look like we had the the right to use uh, Michael Bean likeness, so I think they wanted it to look like Michael Bean, uh, you know, in the in the bounds of a comic book, like not super photorealistic, but like where someone could go, like, oh yeah, Michael Bean. Um, so I thought that if I really scarred him up, um, which would be cool to draw, it would still it would make him look further away from what he looks like, uh, and plus it was kind of closer to what happened in the movie, like you know, it wasn't. Uh, I mean, then again, we don't know how, how you know, intense the acid is. So yeah, maybe you could like melt half his face off. But I thought if it just kind of was like a, you know, uh, you know, just you know, top layer of skin kind of thing, it would it would serve both uh, needs that we needed to to address. Right, because it's clear that he's injured, but he also looks like Hicks. Like you can tell that that's who he is. He did this thing where he had like one of his eyes a different color. Also, I mean, right. subtle. But, uh, but just, you know, just like a few little things that like, oh, things are a little different for our, our pal Hicks here. Cool. Um, Bradley John Sudbeck asks, uh, how do you feel about David Fincher's versions of Alien 3? I enjoyed it. Uh, it uh, sure, it, it gets a lot of 
But the, the thing I like about the um, the movies in the Alien franchise is that each one does have the hand of the auteur. Like each one does belong to the director, um, and it's one of the one of the reasons why I wanted to to do one because I felt like I didn't have to make it look like anything. Like it could just look like my art because each Alien movie looks like a movie that that director would would make. So. Um, yeah, it's not as good as the first two, in my opinion, but it it was what it was like, and it and it was truly that. And I know Fincher had his problems with it too. Like he uh, apparently is not jazzed about it, but it <laughs> but to put it to put it lightly, yeah. <laughs> but it it's a it's a document. It's a of of it feels very nineties. It does feel very nineties. I'll I'll say that. It does have that subversive '90s quality to it, for sure. Yeah, yeah and it, it feels like it does feel like a '90s, uh, you know, music video. It it definitely does. Yeah. Well, I mean, because it was made by a '90s video music director. You know, at the end of the day. Um, and another question from a listener, Nathan Gribble asks: When taking the classic Aliens' perfect design into consideration, did it ever feel like, or did you ever feel like slightly augmenting the creatures to make them look more unique for this adaptation? Um, and if so, what did you or what would you change if you could change the design of the Xenomorph at all? Yeah, so what I did was I wanted it to look different, but the same. You know, the old Hollywood trope, trope uh, giving me the same thing, but different. Um, so what I did was I took it back. So I started looking at a lot of uh, Giger for the, um, we have a, or look, we have like a hybrid Xeno in it. So what I did was I tried to make it look closer to um, Giger's original uh alien drawings, xenomorph drawings. So that way it it is what it is, but it's also kind of new by being super retro. So if you looked at like art books on Giger, you'd be like, oh shit, he's using the the Giger Xeno. Um where, you know, you can kind of see through the, the skull dome thing to see the the Xeno skull underneath. That sort of thing. So so that's what I did. Awesome. Um and I think we have time for one more question. This comes from Christopher Cooksey, uh, and he says, "What would?" And you've you've kind of hinted at this with a previous question, but I'm I'm curious. If you can kind of develop it out a little bit. He says, "What would Alien Four be if you were to write it after this story?" Oh, um, I I think Alien Four would be. Uh, I, I don't want to spoil it by saying who survives, but the survivors would hunt down the xenomorphs like it would be it would start off as kind of like a uh, detective sort of thing where they they're like taking all the clues from everything that they've got they try and track down the source of where the hell this thing might have possibly come from and they would either find it and the confrontation would happen there or they would find something radically different that points to a wider world in which these crazy um um creatures came out of i for one would love to see you do that <laughs> i feel like that would be so cool but you know i understand you know you're a busy guy you got stuff to do um hey, baby, do it i'll do it <laughs> i i just want to just on behalf of the show and on behalf of all the people listening uh just just really thank you not only for coming on and giving us your time but also for giving us a wonderful new story to share and to cherish and to talk about and to come back in 10 years, you know, and people are talking about some of their favorite moments in the expanded universe and your work's going to be referenced in fandom. And um, I, I really just want to thank you for that, for giving us something yes. to talk about. 
Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, even for me, like I said, I'm not a comic guy, but it was exciting to go out and buy like a comic that kind of continued the Ripley uh, journey, even though she's kind of not fully in it, but still, it's kind of that 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 family that we're so used to and in, in a new world. It's been it's been pretty awesome. Oh, thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for having me on. Like, I, I really appreciate this. For sure. Of course. And and uh, where can people find you if they want to look you up on social media, you know, on uh, the internet? Where, where can we look for your work and what you got coming next? On Instagram, uh, I'm at Johnny with an I-E, Johnny Xmas. Uh, Twitter, I'm J underscore Xmas, X-M-A-S. Uh, and, you know, Facebook, Johnny Christmas, you can find me there. Um, and, yeah, the next thing I, I got coming is a sci-fi that I'm writing um, that will be coming out this year. Um around summertime awesome yeah it's, it's been fun it's been we'll see when it uh i can't wait for the world to see it great awesome. well, well we'll be watching with bated breath thank you so much for coming on yes right. thanks again thanks so johnny appreciate it. have a great night all right you guys too thanks right. patrick thanks jamie bye thanks bye For more on this and our other projects, please visit www.perfectorganism.com. If you'd like to join the conversation, find us on our closed Facebook group, Building Better Worlds. To support the show, please consider visiting www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. We've got some great perks available. And as always, please consider rating, reviewing, and sharing the show. We can't tell you how much your support means to us but we can hopefully show you by continuing to provide better, more ambitious, and more dynamic content for years to come.